Welcome to The Little Sleep Show, a podcast about helping your children and family get the sleep you need. Hosted by Laura Meyercourt. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Little Sleep Show. I'm your host, Laura, and I'm an infant and child sleep consultant and recording this at 7 a.m. because my kids are still sleeping and that's the only time I can get some peace and quiet in this house. It's a good day today. The sun is shining. I just drank a big jar of this herbal infusion that I've been trying to drink every, like one a week. It's like you basically steep um, fresh or dried herbs in water overnight and then you strain it and then you drink it and it's, they have different properties. The one I drank is supposed to cleanse your body, help your lymph system, give you energy. And I feel it. Like I feel more energy from this than I do from a cup of coffee. It's something I got into kind of over the quarantine studying herbal medicine. And it's totally like a rabbit hole to go down because there is so much to learn. You know, it's folk medicine. And so different backgrounds have different ideas about which plants to use and what they do. So there's the Eastern philosophy, there's the Native American philosophy, there's the European. So it's like massive amount of knowledge, but It's something I can kind of dabble in and it's something that kept me semi-occupied during quarantine. So I call myself Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman now. My husband's always making fun of me because I'm always trying to get him to drink or take some kind of herbal (laughs) formula now. But it works. I wouldn't take them and I wouldn't I wouldn't go, you know, get into this topic and go deeper into this subject if it didn't actually work and didn't help me. So just wanted to share kind of like one of my little hobbies that I'm working on with you guys. I'm always, I'm always learning something. I cannot stop learning. Like as soon as I'm done with one thing, I'm on to the next thing. So my next goal actually for the business side of things and the parenting side of things is to get certified in postpartum mood disorders. So I want to be able to help moms that have postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis, mainly so that I can, um, spot the signs of that when a client comes to me, because of course, when a client is suffering from one of those mood disorders or any other mood disorder, that has to be addressed first, because you're not going to make much progress with your child's sleep if you are, if you're not treating yourself and what's going on with you, because it, as parents, it all starts with us and where we're at. And that's actually... I didn't plan this, but that's a good segue into today's topic. So today's topic is about parents' expectations around sleep and how we can kind of set ourselves up to be disappointed and set ourselves up for failure. I think something that's really important to keep in mind with sleep is that there is not a one-size-fits-all solution. And I say this a lot, and I say it a lot for good reason, because there is this big misconception in our culture that there is this magic bullet for sleep. Like I I experienced this as well as a sleep consultant. I get clients coming to me and we'll try certain things and we'll get a little bit of improvement and they'll come back to me and be like, I know they're looking for that magic thing that we're going to do that's going to help their child sleep. And a lot of times it's just a very slow process. You know, it's just like child development because it is child development. Sleep is closely tied to your child's development wherever your child is at developmentally is going to be mirrored in their sleep and sleep disruptions. One of the biggest ones that I've heard from almost every client is that at a certain age, our child should sleep through the night. 
or that once they do, they always will. That's the one that just like, it just makes me cringe because I mean, do you sleep well every night? No. So why would our children sleep well every night? They're human beings just like us. And yeah, they don't have as much stress and worry and bills and those kind of things that keep us up at night, but they have their own little worlds. And sometimes those little worlds keep them up at night. Technically, this is what I've heard from different doctors and in in readings around the age of between three and six months, your child will able be able to sleep for stretches of five hours at a time, which is considered sleeping through the night. So sleeping through the night isn't even what you think to begin with. So there's a little myth right there that's smashed. And what's important to keep in mind is how big that window is that doctors are giving for sleeping through the night. Three to six months is a massive window. That gives your child a lot of room to develop because the change that's happening at that time, actually, I just talked about this in my previous podcast about sleep progressions. There's a massive change going on for your child between that the age of three to six months, really three to five months. And so that is going to probably cause a lot of sleep disruption. So depending on where that falls for your child in their development, it's going to affect their ability to be able to sleep for those bigger chunks during the night. I think a part of this I want to talk about too is I understood it much better when it was explained to me by uh, the director of my sleep consulting program. So expecting a child to be independent around sleep while they're dependent in, on us in every other way. When you think about it, it's crazy. You know, we expect kids to be able to put themselves to sleep, stay asleep during the night without any parental interaction. And in every other way, your baby or your young child is dependent on you. They need you to go to the bathroom. They need you to eat. They need you to take them places. It doesn't make sense that there's kind of this, um, you know, there's this taboo if your child can't fall asleep by themselves or can't stay asleep by themselves during the night that they're not a good sleeper. I just want to go ahead and smash that right there because that is absolutely not true. Children are dependent on us in every way, including with sleep. And I'm going to talk about really important emotional part of sleep that I think a lot of you know, these common sleep methods, sleep training methods don't take into account is the emotional connect connectivity part of sleep. Another part of why kids can't sleep through the night is the partial arousals. I've talked about this before, so bear with me if you've heard it before, but in our sleep cycle, and this is for everyone, once your baby switches over, which is around the three to five month mark, once your baby switches over to an adult-like sleep cycle, so they'll have the same type of sleep cycle as an adult, it'll just be shorter for them. At the end of each sleep cycle, before they begin a new one, they're in a very light stage of sleep. This is, can be a partial arousal because if conditions are not right for sleep, like if things aren't the way that they were when your baby or your child or you even fell asleep, for instance, it's too hot. You have to go to the bathroom. You need a drink of water. If any of those things aren't right when you're in that partial arousal state, you're going to wake up and you're going to correct the issue and then you're going to hopefully be able to fall back to sleep. That's what's happening for your child is they're waking up during these partial arousals. Things are not the way they want them to be. A lot of times it's just because they fell asleep with a parent and then the parent's not there. And then they call out for you because they need your help to get back to sleep. So when you think about it, That way, with the science behind why children wake up 
frequently during the night. It makes a whole lot of sense and it takes the whole, you know, good sleeper, bad sleeper aspect out of it. So why do our children need us to help them sleep? Sleep is a very vulnerable time. It's dark. It's quiet. They don't have their parents around who are, when your child is small, your child sees themselves as a part of you. They don't see themselves as a separate entity yet. And they miss you at night. They need lots of reassurance, trust. They need some confidence in themselves that they're able to soothe themselves at bedtime or during the night. And that takes time to build that confidence. So something called emotional well-being, I learned about as well when I was taking the sleep consultant course. Emotional well-being was kind of created by this woman, Ann Caird, who's a graduate also of my school. Basically, how well can we deal with challenges? How strong are we internally? And looking after whatever emotional needs our child needs, our child has. So some of the foundations of emotional well-being, so kind of like the benefits or the things we need to look at, are building confidence, addressing fears and anxiety, empowering your child and empowering yourself, reassuring us as the parent, respecting child attachment, which is a very important part of development, challenges our previous negative beliefs around sleep. So again, the good sleeper, the bad sleeper, reassuring your child and your, or your baby, and preparing the way for or can reduce the need for behavioral approaches, which is the sleep training approaches. We call those behavioral approaches because it's basically teaching your child to behave in a certain way that they don't need to call out for you or to minimize that. So a lot of the things around emotional well-being are connecting during the day or connecting during the bedtime routine. If you'd like to hear more about this topic, I recorded an episode early on called The Power of Play, where I talk a lot about emotional well-being and connection and how important it is for sleep and how you can kind of incorporate it into your day and into your bedtime routine. So I won't go deeply into it in this episode because I was hoping to kind of keep this a little shorter. I've been doing some long ones lately. So some of the ways you can do it are playtime before bed. You know, there there is this biological kind of burst of energy before we get ready to go to sleep. And it's for not only for children, but for adults too. And so if you can take advantage of that time to connect with your child, but also help them kind of get get rid of some of those excessive uh, stress hormones in their body if they have them, the cortisol, that will help them be able to settle better for sleep. So for more detailed way on how to approach emotional well-being and how to work it into your day and into your bedtime routine, check out the Power of Play episode. They can go hand in hand, the emotional and the behavioral approaches. Now, I do have some clients before I do any behavioral approach, I do the emotional well-being work. I do the foundations of sleep work, which is environment, schedule, routines, those kind of things, which are a lot of times there, if you adjust those, you don't need a lot of work with behavioral approaches, but some children do. Some children have learned habits. They've learned responses from their parents that you do need to teach them how to break that. And sometimes a behavioral approach is needed, but that's only way after you get all these foundations in place. So that's usually around, for me, it's usually around week three with a client. So you can see how long it takes to 
get to a place where you're emotionally connected with your child enough to be able to practice one of these approaches with them and that they'll be able to receive it much better than if you were just to do this cold turkey without addressing any of the underlying issues. So it's a really important part of sleep. And I want to talk for just a minute about self-regulation and co-regulation because I think it's a really important part of sleep. So self-regulation, it's a foundation for us for our whole entire life and our relationships and our emotional responses and our ability to um, have a good relationship with another person even down the line. It can affect our educational achievement, physical, emotional, social, and economic health. So this is a big deal. And it has a lot to do with sleep. You'll see why I'm going to connect it in a minute. Self-regulation can be defined, and I'm reading this from an article from um, Duke University. Self-regulation can be defined as the act of managing thoughts and feelings to enable goal-directed actions and includes a variety of behaviors necessary for success in school, relationships, and the workplace. So basically, it's a way to be able to manage our thoughts, feelings, emotions, and it begins with parental connection and and they and our children watching us and observing us and how we react to certain situations and then they mirror that so self-regulation is dependent upon predictable responsive supportive parenting and supportive environments growing up so that's why children growing up in for instance in a traumatic situation have a lot more trouble with self-regulation. They have a lot more trouble with controlling emotions, knowing how to appropriately appropriately respond because they didn't have that growing up. With sleep, our children need to see our responses to what they're doing in order to be able to form their own ideas about how things should be, how they should react to certain situations. And that's actually called co-regulation. So That's the supportive process between caring adults and children, youth or young adults that fosters self-regulation development. Started out as a description for adult supportive infants, but now co-regulation is recognized as being a very important ingredient in pretty much any close intimate relationship. So I have co-regulation with my children. I have co-regulation with my husband. So going back to the example of a child growing up in a traumatic or neglectful environment, that child learns over time that my needs aren't important and I need to just be quiet in order to be safe here. And so adults, teenagers and adults who grow up with that mindset, with that type of co-regulation, learn to push their needs down and learn to diminish their needs So you could see that it really affects someone over their entire lifetime. So there's three parts to co-regulation. Number one is providing a warm, responsive relationship. So you can see how that has to do with sleep. How you're responding to your child when they're in distress during the night is an important part of co-regulation because they want to see when they're distressed if you're going to come and help them. And that's part of why I think it's When I hear someone who just kind of like gets frustrated with their child's sleep and just lets them cry it out, yeah, once in a while, like you have to let your child just cry. If you're at the end of your rope, even when I was a nanny, like there were some times when children, like you just have to put them down in their crib and let them cry and know that they're safe and they're okay. But when using that as a sleep training technique, if you're not addressing those underlying issues, 
then you're just letting your child cry and you're not providing them the warm, responsive relationship. So if you know that your child is safe, they're okay, all their needs are met, they're not going to bed overtired, they're able to put themselves, you know, to sleep or back to sleep, you've seen them do it before, then you can feel a little bit better about doing something like that. Although it's not something that I personally think is a great idea. I think it's always better to go and respond to your child and slowly, slowly, gradually withdraw the amount of interaction and response. But again, every family and child is different and you have to choose what's right for you. Caregivers can build strong relationships with children by communicating through words and actions, their interest in the child's world, respect as an individual for your child, and commitment to caring for your child no matter what. So unconditional caring for your child. So that's what our children are looking for from us with that category. Structure the environment, provide a buffer against environmental stressors. So this is what I'm talking about with children growing up in a traumatic environment or a neglectful environment. Those children have not been provided a buffer against stressors in their environment. They are not growing up in a safe environment. Consistent, predictable routines and expectations promote a sense of security by providing clear goals for behavior regulation and logical consequences for negative behavior. So this also plays a part in sleep because when your child knows what to expect and what's expected of them within, you know, certain boundaries within the bedtime routine, within your responses during the night, in the early morning, then they know what the parameters are and how far, you know, they're going to test you because children test us. That's what they do. It's part of their healthy development to test boundaries. But if they get a consistent response or if they know this always goes this way, bedtime always goes this way, we always do things in a certain order, we always read a certain amount of books, then they know what to expect and they feel safe and it's much easier for them to, to settle Because they know, okay, at the end of this second book, it's going to be time for me to go to sleep. Cues their bodies and their brains after being in a routine and a schedule for a while for these very important parts of their day, eating, sleeping, knowing what to expect is very, very big with providing emotional well-being to children. So a lot of parents will come to me and say, well, I don't want to be on a rigid schedule or rigid routine. And it's not about rigidity. It's about consistency. So if you can kind of separate those two ideas in your head, it will give you a much wider area to work with within your day for your child's routines. Because I know some families have different routines on different days. There's days when they go to childcare, there's days when they're home. And so sometimes you do have to have some flexibility or there's other older siblings and they need to go to activities. That's fine. As long as things are generally in a certain order, you know, and generally predictable responses by parents and boundaries definitely set up for children. And then teach and coach self-regulation skills through modeling, instructing, and opportunities for practice. So caregivers should teach skills. Like for instance, when your child is, you see your child getting very upset and about to have a tantrum, instead of yelling at them and telling them to go sit in time out, something we can do to help promote self-regulation is to get down to their level And just be with them and talk to them and talk them through what's going on for them. What are you feeling in your body right now? You know, those kind of things where we can help our children be aware of what's going on in their bodies and in their brains 
when they're experiencing distress, that is very powerful for them because it's teaching them to name these things. And once they can name them, they can start to learn more about what's going on in their bodies and they can communicate with us. I'm feeling very angry right now. And then we know how to help our child through that if they're feeling very angry. So something that's really important is if we don't have self-regulation as parents, we can't give it to our children. So, you know, sometimes I'll point out to parents that they need to calm themselves before they go and respond to a child in the middle of the night or if their child's having trouble at bedtime falling asleep. Take five deep breaths before you go in the room because if you're not calm, if you're going in there upset, it's going to just add to the situation. It's going to add to the stress. If you go in there in a calm manner, you're going to kind of bring the stress level down. Your child's going to feel that when you walk in the room, if you go in there in a calm way. So very important to self-regulate as a parent. And some other self-regulation techniques we can start to teach to older children is to be aware of breath. I've talked about this in a couple other podcasts, and it's a really powerful tool to teach to our children. One of the other reasons our children need us is developmental milestones, which disrupt sleep and I talk all about that in my sleep regressions podcast. Heightened separation anxiety, which is happening during developmental leaps, but also at at other times. If there's transitions going on with your child's life, if you guys are moving, if you've just gone back to work after quarantine, if your child's going to a new um, caregiver, all those things are going to trigger separation anxiety. And sometimes our children aren't able to process all those feelings during the day. And so at night, those feelings will come out and the separation anxiety is going to be very heightened for your child. They'll be scared to go to bed or they'll be scared to sleep in their own bed. So you want to be aware of transition. So change or conflict within the home, starting a new school, a new sibling, parental conflict in the home, even if you're fighting a lot with your spouse or your partner or your child's parent, sickness, illness. Or stress, like if you've lost your job because of coronavirus, if you've, you know, financially burdened, your child can feel that because they're looking for this co-regulation with you. So one other thing I want to touch on before I end this podcast is parents' feelings and beliefs about crying and sleep. So I did an entire podcast about crying. That's how important this topic is around sleep. It was early on. I can't remember which number episode it was, but it's just titled Crying. I talk in depth about what I'm going to talk about right now, but, you know, we have, again, it goes back to our preconceived ideas about sleep. We have preconceived ideas about crying. They were the things that were taught to us by our parents and probably the things that were taught to them by their parents, unless they did the work on themselves to break the cycle. So crying is communication for children. Crying doesn't always necessarily signal distress or even to have needs met. Sometimes children cry to process or regulate emotions. If they're overstimulated, if they're frustrated, um, if they're scared, if they have separation anxiety, if they're in pain, all those things can be, and there's more, there's more to that list, but those are just some of the ways children process feelings and emotions through crying. So it's not necessarily meaning they need to have something met right immediately. Sometimes they just need us to be there for them. And this is particularly important to keep in mind when making any changes around sleep. So if you're now deciding we don't want to co-sleep anymore, I want my child to start sleeping in their own bed, expect your child to cry probably a lot 
because A, they don't understand why things have to change. They like things the way they are. And B, because, you know, it's a way for them to process all the feelings that they have about it. Children don't have the the ability to verbalize feelings and emotions and think about it. Even we as adults aren't very good at verbalizing feelings and emotions a lot of the time. I like to think I'm pretty emotionally aware and I still have trouble verbalizing how I'm feeling and separating various feelings and emotions. So your child just cries sometimes because they are upset about the way things are going or they just need to process emotions. Crying is a good thing. When your child is crying, they are getting, they're processing, they're working through, they're getting rid of any negative emotions and feelings in their body. So when your child is crying, you want to ask yourself, what need does my child need met right now? And if you've met all their needs and you've met emotional needs as well, so you've put in the work with connecting with your child during the day and before bedtime, if your child is crying, maybe you just need to hold your child and let them cry. And it's probably going to be really hard for a lot of people not to try to distract or shush your child. But sometimes getting the tears out will actually benefit sleep because once your child processes all that emotion, they'll be able to sleep peacefully. So tears are normal, they're beneficial, and they're healing. If your child's not allowed to cry, so if you're always, always shushing your child or coming in and stopping your child from crying, even with the best intentions, they'll suppress the emotion and it will often come out during the night or naps. Crying is a natural part of the sleep process because sleep is such a vulnerable time for us. Like I said before, it involves change and children are going to protest change. That's just what children do. They're used to doing things in a certain way and they don't understand all the adult good reasons why things need to change. Maybe it's for the best for your family. Maybe no one in your bed is getting sleep because your child is turning, tossing and turning and kicking everyone all night. And you've decided, okay, we've had enough of this. No one's getting any sleep. We're going to stop co-sleeping. We're going to move our child into their own crib. Well, your child doesn't understand your reasons behind that. They just see that they're separating from you now and you're putting them in their own bed. So you can see how there's a lot of different emotions underneath it. It's not just being afraid. There's probably a lot more going on for your child in a situation where you're trying to make changes around sleep. So just something to keep in mind. Parents will come to me and say, well, I want to get my child to sleep, but I don't want them to cry at all. That's pretty unrealistic because, as I said, children communicate through crying and they process emotion through crying. So we actually want some crying with support from parents. That's the key. When your child is crying and crying and crying, if they're in distress and you're not responding to them, that's kind of like a negative strike against your attachment with your child. So when your child is in distress, they're looking for that co-regulation. How can I calm myself down? Because they don't know how to calm themselves down a lot of the times yet. They don't have the skill set for that. So by teaching self-regulation through co-regulation, we can begin to teach our children that all-important self-soothing process, which is going to be able to set them up for success when they are able to put themselves to sleep a little more independently. And that's going to depend drastically on where your child is at emotionally, developmentally. So it's going to change at different times for your child throughout their life and throughout their childhood. So I just have a really simple reflection for this week, and that is just to kind of go back and think about what are my preconceived ideas? What are my expectations around 
my child's sleep, around their ability to sleep independently. And why do I want my child to sleep independently so bad? Yes, of course, as a parent, we want to get our own sleep. We need sleep. I know there's some people who can function on little sleep. My husband is one of those people, or at least he says he can function on little sleep. I cannot. If I don't get like seven hours, eight hours a night, oh, it's not good. Like I feel it right away the next day. And I know there's a lot of other parents out there like that. But when we choose to have a child, we are saying, I'm going to be there for you to help you develop and grow every step of the way. And sleep is a big part of that development because we are teaching our child how to self-soothe and self-regulate. And those are skills, as I mentioned earlier, that are going to follow them throughout their entire lives. So you can see how very important it is to kind of get rid of your own expectations or the preconceived ideas you had about sleep and to start to think about what's right for my family and what's right for my child, this child in front of me. And it might be different for siblings as well. I've taken care of families with two and three children where every sibling was totally different in regards to sleep. And it had a lot to do with temperament and personality. It has to do with the first child, the middle child, like we're responding to those children in a different way. There is just so much here. It's a very loaded topic. And that's really why I wanted to kind of help you think about it today and help you separate the shoulds from what's actually really going on with your child and with your family. So I hope that this podcast was really helpful to parents And I hope it gives you some peace of mind and helps you tune into your own instincts and intuitions as a parent, which are so powerful. That's my show for this week. If you're a fan of The Little Sleep Show and you're finding this to be really helpful for you as a parent, please share The Little Sleep Show on social media. And also, it would be so awesome if you could go to iTunes and rate and review just so that we can reach more people. I hope you all have a great rest of your week and take good care of yourselves and each other. Bye. We'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. Until then, follow us on Instagram and Facebook for tips on sleep and a whole lot more. See you next week.